I will be reading from Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And if you have the Bibles in front of you, we're starting at page 434. After all this took place, King Ashuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's commands? When they had warned him day after day, and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated, since he had had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, There is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury." The king removed his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman's son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ashuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the people so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for this morning. 
Um, we want to bless you because you are an amazing God who sits on your throne and you deserve all of our worship. You deserve all of the honor. You deserve all praise. And this is what we get to do today. It's not because we have to, but we get to come before you and to worship you. And so for all of us who are here today gathered um, here at this church, I pray that we see that this is not just a, um, a trivial day for us to come and sit, to listen to people sing and sit and listen to someone talk for an hour or two, but we come before a glorious God, a glorious God who deserve our attention. And so I pray that we can cast aside any distractions that are in our hearts, in our minds, things that has happened to us this week, um, that we can bring those things to you and allow you to bring resolve to them. You are a good God who wants to take care of your people. And so this is why, just like we sung the song earlier, we need you. Lord, I need you. And I need you to help me convey your words. But we need you to speak to us. God, you know every single one of us in every area in our lives that we need a word from you. And so, God, we open up our hearts for you to speak to us. Lord, right now, I want to take some time to pray for uh, churches who are proclaiming your gospel right now. Abide. Um, we have uh, uh, Lucius's church. Um, we have people all around uh, that are proclaiming you this morning or this afternoon. Father, I pray your spirit would move throughout Atlanta and that the people who gather together to hear from you will be, will, will, will be encouraged that we can be people who are strengthened by your gospel, but then move to take your gospel to a broken world. God, I also want to pray for people even in our church. Um, what comes to mind right now is Alex a brother who's been faithful for a number of years here at Blueprint, but now you're calling him to move to New Mexico. And so I pray for my brother as you guide him, you guide him and you open doors for him um, these next seasons that he's about to enter into. And there are so many people in our church who are transitioning to new seasons, whether it's moving here are moving away from here. God, we believe, just like we're studying here in Esther, nothing is a coincidence. Everything is designed by you. And you know our steps. And even before we even took a step to move, you have already paved the way. And so for all those people who are either transitioning here or transitioning away, even if they don't see what's happening, I pray that they can trust in your providence to know that you're a good God and you know what's best for us. And so as we take the time to study here in the book of Esther to see your providence and how you take care of us, I pray we'd be encouraged by that. So God, fill me with your words, what I need to say, only what I need to say. 
not anything from my flesh because it's impotent, it has no power at all, but it's your words that gives life. And it's your words that brings dead bones to life. And so I pray only you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Blueprint Church. Glad that you are here with us today. Um, And so last week, we started a new series uh, on the book of Esther. And uh, Pastor Dahadi did a great job covering Esther chapter 1 and 2. And today we are in Esther chapter 3. Now, if you've ever read the book of Esther, or maybe you are reading Esther for the first time with us, and I just want to encourage you, as we're studying this book, go back and read through each of these chapters, because I want you to really get a grasp of what each of these chapters are saying, so that when we get together on Sundays, that you have a full context of what we're talking about. But if you've ever read the book of Esther, or this is your first time kind of reading the story, you probably think that this is a story that belongs on a Lifetime Network right? Or maybe BT plus, right? And so listen, not that I would know because I don't watch these networks or at least I don't watch them by choice or by myself. I sit next to my wife to watch them. Um, But really, um, if you read the book of Esther, the story of Esther, you would see that this is a story that is filled with drama, filled with drama because this is one of the most dramatic books in the Bible. This book is filled with drama, filled with suspense. There's a lot of twists and turns in each of these chapters, and it's like the author kind of keeps you at the edge of your seat, just waiting to know what's going to happen, kind of like when you watch a really good episode, and then you have to wait until next week to know what happens, right? This is how the book of Esther is, filled with drama, filled with suspense, filled with climactic moments, right, where we see unlikely characters become the hero or we see underdogs become the champion, right? We read about Esther, and some think that she was about 14 to 16 years old. This young Jewish girl who was an orphan, Jewish tradition tells us that um, when Esther's mom was pregnant with her, that's when her father died, and then her mom died during childbirth, And so she never got a chance to know her mom or her father. And so she was this orphan child who was taken to be raised by her older cousin Mordecai, right? And so you see, this is a story about this young orphan girl raised by her cousin, but then not just that, but she was raised in slavery because this is during the time of the Persian exile. Right? So this is a Cinderella story because we see this woman, this young girl, eventually becomes queen. Right? This unexpected twist of events takes place. She enters into this beauty pageant conducted to replace the current queen, Queen Vashti, who became defiant towards the king. Right? So the king threw this banquet, this party. And then he wanted to show off his queen because she was the one, one of the most beautiful women in the entire empire. And so he calls for the queen to come and she refuses because he wanted to show her off to, her friend, to his friends. And so she refused to come. He gets angry. His ego is bruised. He's embarrassed. 
And then this led to a crisis in the palace and people started questioning the king's authority. And they were like, yo, if you can't control your woman, how can you control this empire? And so the king got angry. And so this became the catalyst to Esther becoming queen, winning this pageant that she had no business being a part of. And so Esther, this young Jewish girl, was encouraged by her older cousin Mordecai to enter into this secular, worldly pageant, kind of like The Bachelor, right? And she obeyed. She obeyed her cousin, and it eventually paid off. But there's a lot that's wrong in this story. There's a lot that's wrong in this story. Mordecai, who's supposed to be protecting this young girl, encouraged her to participate in a morally compromising situation. Right? There's a lot of ethical and theological questions we see in this story. Do we obey authority when obedience to authority might conflict with our moral principles and encourages us to do wrong? Do we lie to get ahead? Because Esther had to conceal her identity as a Jew in order for her to enter into this pageant. And this, is, this raised this question, are there times where deception is okay? Right? Do we sacrifice integrity to influence, to have influence? Esther had to do some things that may have seemed immoral to give her an opportunity for success, to influence the king and to save her people. Is it okay to compromise our integrity for success or for a higher purpose? See, the book of Esther, it raises these complex ethical issues to remind us that we are a broken people living in a broken, fallen world, and we are not always going to get it right. We're not always going to get it right. And even those who try to do what is right can sometimes find themselves in difficult situations where there is no easy answers. Life in a fallen, fallen world, life in a broken world is marked by imperfection. And sometimes we will make choices that reflect our imperfection. And so as you read the story, you feel this tension, right? You want to cheer for these characters, but they lie. <laughs> they compromise to get ahead. And then as you read the story, you're wondering, man, where is God? Like, God, you have anything to say about this? And then we see that God is totally silent. Totally silent, completely silent throughout the book. And this is the question that the author wants us to wrestle with and to be thinking about. Where is God? Where is God in our everyday problem? Does he just sit back and watch us while we try to figure out things on our own? Does he care? 
Does he care about the difficult choices that we have to make? Are all things just a coincidence? Or is God actively behind every single thing, even if we're not aware, right? And so this one book that we have in the Bible out of the 66 books that we have, this is the one book where we see that God is completely silent. And we don't see any giving of signs. We don't see any type of prophetic revelations. We don't see any type of miracles. God is completely silent. Have you ever felt that way? Have you felt that way? Have you ever been in a position where you want to hear from God or you need help from him in a difficult situation that you don't know what to do? And you've searched through the Bible and it seems like the Bible doesn't give you a clear answer or give you an answer at all. You pray, but then it seems like God is silent, right? What do you do in those situations? What do you do when God is silent and he seems distant or absent? How do you navigate through these times? And this is the tension that we feel in the book of Esther. When God doesn't speak, when God doesn't act, when God seems distant and absent, what do we do? And so the question for us today is, where can we find God in our darkest hours? Where can we find God in our darkest hours? And I think this is what we're going to see today in chapter 3. So chapter 3 I believe, helps us to see. I want you to hear me. We can trust God in our darkest hours. In our darkest hours, God is calling us to trust in the unseen. Calling us to trust in the unseen. Calling us to believe in his sovereignty. Even when things don't make sense, even when things don't make sense and we don't know what to do, we can trust in God's providence, knowing that he is actively working on our behalf. All right. So let's look at chapter three. So this chapter opens up introducing to us a new character a new character and a new conflict. Verse one says, after all this took place, the king honored Haman, the son of Amadadat, the Agite. Uh, he promoted him in rank and he gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. I want to pause here for a second. So verse one, the author wants us to give, wants to give us a context of this new character and this new conflicts. And so this is five years after Esther became queen. And it seems like everything was going well for the Jews. They had success. They had prosperity. They had security. They had stability. Life was good for them during exile then immediately things shift. Immediately things change for them. And this peace that they had was disrupted. Haman, this new character, gets this promotion to power and authority, and we see people bowing down to Haman. 
And if you go back to chapter 2, verses 19 to 23, you get to see the context of how Haman gets this promotion. There were guards that were sitting at a gate plotting the assassination of the king. And you had Mordecai, who every day would go to the gate just to see how is Esther doing. And every day he was faithful to go to the gate to check up on Esther. And then while he was sitting at this gate, he overhears this conversation that these guards were having to plot the assassination of the king. And so Mordecai hears this. Then he tells Esther, and Esther tells the king. And the king had these men executed. Now, instead of rewarding Mordecai, the king promotes Haman to be chief minister over his entire empire. And again, we see this twist in the story, and the twist is sometimes life is not fair. Sometimes life is not fair. Sometimes we see good things happen to bad people, and then we see bad things happen to good people, right? And the author wants us to wrestle with this tension. Why does God allow evil to prevail while people who are trying to do good suffer and struggle? Why did God allow Mordecai, right, to be at the temple gate to hear this but not get rewarded? Why did Mordecai, who tried to do what was right, go unrewarded while Haman, we read, was filled with hatred for God's people, gained power and was rewarded. Where was God to stop this? Where was God in preserving fairness and justice, fighting to make sure things are right? And we all have felt this way. We all have asked these questions when we don't understand what God is doing, right? We all have seen this in our lives where we try to do what's right. We try to be faithful, but it seemed like things are never working out in our favor, right? You try to do what's right. Maybe you you pray and you fast and you still haven't won the lottery, right? But then we see that unfaithful people are being blessed, right? I mean, so many times in our lives, we try to do what's right, but then we see we're never rewarded. Or maybe you're trying to be faithful to God. You're reading the Bible. You're doing all these spiritual discipline. You're walking in obedience, but then things are still not going right in your life. You're still struggling with some sin issues, You're still struggling with some deep-seated things. You're losing some battles. And then this becomes very frustrating, right? Because it feels like faithfulness to God doesn't immediately result in the blessing or the outcome that we want, right? And so Haman was given power and authority that he didn't deserve. And we later find out that he's about to use this power and authority to annihilate the Jews. God, didn't you see that? 
God, didn't you see that? Have you ever felt that way? Like, God, you are omniscient. You know all things. Why didn't you stop this from happening? And now we see the Jews would no longer be in this peaceful time. They are now fighting for their lives. They're about to enter into a dark hour, a dark season. And so we see this great conflict that exists between Haman and Mordecai. Everyone is bowing down to Haman, but Mordecai refuses. And Haman hates Mordecai so much that he wants to annihilate Mordecai and all of the Jews. And then we see in verse one, the author gives us a hint at why Haman's hatred for Mordecai and the Jews were so great, right? The author says Haman was an Agagite. Why does that matter? I want you to encourage you when you're reading the Bible, whenever you see something, even if it seems so small, like identifying where Haman is from, things like that, sometimes those small minor details are very significant. And sometimes in those small minor details, this is where God wants us to pause and listen closely. The author says, Haman is an Agagite. And I wanna give you a quick bullet point of the history of Haman's family lineage. And I want you to really stick with me so you don't tune me out and you get lost. Haman was an Agagite, meaning that he was from the family line of King Agag who lived around 400 BC. King Agag, if you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, was the king of the Amalekites who went to war with King Saul. Went to war with the Jews back in 10, uh, the 10th century BC. And now the Amalekites, they were grandchildren of Esau way back in the 20th century BC. Haman, King Agag, the Amalekite, and Esau. And so there's 16 centuries between Esau and Haman. And again, I want you to really follow me. Esau, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 25, he had a brother named Jacob. And they were the two sons of Isaac. And so Esau, after working a long shift in the field, he came home very tired and very hungry. He saw Jacob cooking up some stew. And he's like, man, Jacob, let me get some stew. And then so Jacob said, hey, if you sell me your birthright, I will. Right? Your birthright. This is your family inheritance. Right? And so Esau decided to sell his birthright for a plate of food. He was impulsive. He had a craving that he felt that needed to be satisfied right now. He felt like this plate of food was more valuable than his father's blessing. And so this riches and the blessing that the father wanted to give to him, he exchanged that to satisfy a temporary, immediate craving. He had no self-control. And you read a story like that, you think, man, that's crazy. Why would you do that? 
Like if your father worked so hard to save for you an inheritance, why would you exchange that for a plate of food? Listen, in a lot of ways, we are like Esau. We are just like Esau. How many times do we exchange the blessing of having a relationship with God for a temporary and immediate fix? Right? How many times have we exchanged maybe our integrity for immediate success or exchange our family for wealth? We work so hard because we want to have wealth, but then we sacrifice spending time with our family and kids. How many times have we exchanged our spiritual growth for a episode? Or how many times have we exchanged our self-worth for likes on social media? And so we do this all the time, right? We oftentimes prioritize short-term gratification over long-term blessing. And so this impulsive decision that we see, we make every single day has enduring impact. And look at this enduring impact. After Esau sold his birthright to his brother, he realized, man, that was a bad choice. And he became angry. He realized that it wasn't worth it. And so he vowed to kill his brother Jacob. And so this hatred was passed on to his children. This hatred was passed down to Amalek. And we see how the Amalekite throughout centuries warred against the Jews. This hatred was passed down to Agag, son of Amalek. And then we see how this hatred was passed down and they wanted to kill the Jews. And then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 15, where we see Agag and King Saul were at war with one another. And when we see in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Israelites went to war with King Agag, the Amalekite, the Israelites finally had a chance to defeat Agag. King Saul, who led the Israelites, finally captured Agag, and God told Saul to destroy him completely, to kill him, to kill everything that he has, to finally end this 800-year war between the two. But King Saul decided that it would be best to show mercy. So instead of listening to what God said to kill Agag and destroy everything he had, King Saul spared Agag. And then he took the best of Agag and what Agag had, and he decided he wanted to sacrifice it to God. And so Saul thought he was doing a good thing, right? God gave Saul specific commands, but instead he did what was right in his own eyes. And Saul was thinking, man, surely showing mercy, God would be happy with that. Surely taking the best things of Agag and sacrificing it to God, God would be pleased with that. While God's commands was very specific, 
Saul tried to interpret it in a way that seemed right to him. And then so we see God became angry with Saul and said to Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And I believe this is something that we all need to remember today. Obeying God is more important than going through religious rituals. God wants from us complete obedience, a deep, intimate relationship with him more than he wants our performance. And some of us need to hear that right now. God cares more about the condition of our hearts despite your imperfection or your failure. He's not looking for perfection because Jesus is already perfect. What he wants is your complete obedience. And this is why I love reading about David, a man who was called the man after God's own heart. Even though David did a lot that was wrong. David was an adulterer, a murderer. David was a bad father. If you read about David, but David had a sincere heart for God. When God confronted David about his wrong, David was eager to turn back and trust in God's grace. And I want you to hear this right now. God's grace is available to imperfect people who are genuinely seeking him. And there's hope and peace in coming to God with all of our flaws and receiving grace and forgiveness when we have a sincere heart, right? And so we see how Saul's lack of complete obedience had a lasting impact. And that's true for every single one of us. There are some things that we can do We may not see the consequence today, but later it will affect us. And this is why the Bible talks about sin like a seed. If we don't uproot sin in our lives quickly, it can develop into a pattern of behavior that has lasting, long-lasting consequences, shaping our future and eventually affecting our future generation. And so Saul had no idea that by disobeying God, 600 years later, it would come back to haunt him and his generation through Haman, the descendant of King Agag, who he spared, the descendant of Esau, who hates his generation and his descendants. And so this is why we see in Esther chapter 3, verse 5, When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, that he was a Jew, it filled him. It seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the kingdom. This was a long lasting, a long-standing hostility. This hatred and this desire to kill Mordecai was not just personal, it was generational. This was a long-lasting hostility that existed between the two. And just like that, I want you to hear me. 
we all have a Haman in our lives. We all have a Haman in our lives called the flesh. A powerful force in us that has been seeking to destroy us and to lead us astray from God. Haman in the Bible is personified as the flesh. It's a picture of our war with our flesh. And the Bible tells us that we have this long-lasting, long-standing hostility with the flesh, and we are to be putting this flesh to death. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it's talking about the human tendency we all have to prioritize self-interest, worldly desires, sinful behaviors over God's will and righteousness, right? It's the inclination that we all have to act in ways that are not aligned to God's moral and spiritual standards. It's the human tendency to do things that we know are wrong, even when we know what's right. The flesh is the internal struggle we all experience when we are tempted to make selfish and sinful decisions, even though we understand that it breaks God's heart. We all have a Haman in our lives. And this is why Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 17, it says, the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what's against the flesh and the two are at war with each other. And then we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passion and desires. And then we read in Colossians 3, 5, therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. We all have this conflict with a Haman inside of us seeking to destroy us. Either we are actively killing this Haman or this Haman will kill us. Either we are actively killing our flesh or our flesh will kill us. We can't have mercy on this Haman. Because this Haman will eventually make us useless to God. This Haman wants us to bow down and to submit to it. And we all have asked God, we all have asked God, God, why do you allow this Haman to continue to prevail? Why do you allow these passions to continue to wage war inside of us and sometimes overcome us? Why do I keep struggling with this Haman? And whenever I think it's dead, it comes back again. We all have a Haman. We all have asked, God, why don't you give me the power? Why does it feel impossible to get rid of? Here's the twist. Here's the twist. It's impossible for you to win. It's impossible for you to overcome this Haman. And this is why you need a mediator. And this is why we need a mediator. Listen, in the story, when all seemed hopeless, 
God provided a mediator. And this was an unlikely mediator. God knew the tension that would come with Haman and Mordecai. And so this is why five years before this happened, Esther was placed in the palace to be the one that has access to the king to mediate for the people. See, God knew what Haman would be dealing with, the same way God knows what you're dealing with. God knows what you're fighting. And it may seem like he's not beside you, but God is fighting for you. Right? And so we see later, and I'm jumping into the Hades, chapter 4, but we see in chapter 4, verse 16, right? Mordecai realizes how hopeless he was and how hopeless the people was. And so he called to Esther. He sends news to Esther. And Esther, being his mediator in the presence of the king, said to Mordecai, hold up. Listen, go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. Does that sound familiar? Right? And she goes on and says, I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. If I die, I die. Esther. Esther. Esther was willing to put her life on the line for the people to secure their victory and to save them from death. And so just like Esther, Jesus is our mediator, a mediator that is greater than Esther. And this is why in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, we see that he is the one that can go before God for us. It says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9, 24, Jesus entered heaven itself, the heavenly palace of God, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us as our mediator. And then again, Romans chapter 8, 34, who is to condemn Who could condemn? Who's going to go against us? Who will be our Haman? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercede for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, 25, says, because Jesus is always able to save, always able able to save, not sometimes, always able to save those who come to God through him. Since he is always, since he always lived, he's not dead, since he always lived to intercede for them, not sometimes he saves, always. And not only that, this is beautiful right here. There will be times when you don't even know what to do or how to pray. Romans 8.26 says, the Holy Spirit says, I got you. I got you. The Spirit also help us 
in our weakness because there will be times when we don't know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groaning. You're not alone in your darkest moments. You're not alone fighting your Hamans. You have Jesus who goes before the king and who is willing to die. If I die, I die, and he did for us. And whenever you wonder where is God in your darkest times, where is God when you're fighting temptation or you feel alone or you feel defeated or you're warring with this flesh, where is God when it seems hopeless? I hope you listen to this. God has made provision for us. He's made provision for us. Not five years before like in Esther. But the Bible says before the foundation of the world, meaning before you were even born, before you even had the words to cry out for help, God made provision for you. Before the foundation of the world, Revelations 13, 8 says, the lamb was slain to save us. Slain to save us. Before the foundation of of the world, God slayed a lamb to save a man. Then he made a man who would one day need this lamb. Then he sent the lamb down through the man's family line. It was all by design. None of that was coincidence. God knows what we need to fight our Haman. And even when we don't see how victory will come, God has already won. Already won by sending Jesus to be our mediator with the king. And we may not see complete victory now, but victory is already completed. Father, thank you that you are our great Esther. And we see there are dark seasons that we will enter. And some of us may be in dark seasons now. And we may not feel your presence. God, help us to remind, help, help, help to remind us that you are in heaven. You've entered the, the heavenly palace and you are praying over us. You are fighting for us. You are waging war against our Haman. And we may not see you beside us, Lord. Help us to remember that you are still fighting for us. So you are a great king, a great God. Thank you for how you demonstrated this great love that just like Esther, you were willing to die to save us. And I pray that for anyone who's here today who does not know how amazing you are to us, how amazing you are that you are willing to lay down your life for us. I pray that they'll know that today. And not just that, but you rose from the dead and you live and you always live to fight for us. And we're not alone. Pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 
Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.